kidding. Good morning, Christ Bible Church. Morning. morning. Today we are continuing in our series on Nahum. So we'll be starting in uh, Nahum chapter 1, verse 9, and we'll read the text together. But as you're flipping there, uh, I'd like to just take a moment. This is my first time that I've had the microphone, and so I just want to say thank you. Uh, my wife and I have felt blessed time and time again to come to CBC and uh, be part of what's going on here, what the Lord is doing here, and the hospitality and love that you guys have all shown us has been wonderful. So I want to just take a moment to, uh, to say thank you for that. Uh, but as we jump into our text today, Nahum chapter 1, starting in verse 9. <clears throat> what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Let's pray together, church. Lord, you are good. Lord, you are a good God whose word is true. We praise you that you've called us to gather. We thank you for the time that we can spend in your word. And we just ask your blessing upon it. And Lord, we ask that you give us open hearts and open ears and an open mind to hear your word. Lord, through your spirit to understand what it is that you have for us today so that we may live godly lives, glorifying you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, my wife and I, we love a good story. So if you come to our house for dinner, we're going to tell you a lot of stories. We're going to compete over who gets to actually tell you the story because uh, we, we both want to be the good storyteller in the family. Uh, Izzy always has a book in her hand. Uh, when, when she's walking around the house, there's a book in every room, and she's always flipping through. She loves that. We, when we watch TV, most of our TV is stuff that we watch together so we can walk the plot, the storyline. And my thing is the movies. I absolutely love going to the movies. It's one of my favorite hobbies, very relaxing. And so Izzy, in her kindness, uh, goes on dates to the movies with me a lot. <clears throat> so we'll go, we'll see a movie, grab our popcorn. We've got our refill cups so we don't have to spend a fortune there, uh, even more of a fortune than it already costs nowadays. And uh, we'll see the movie, roll credits, wait for the scene after the credits that always exists now, and then we'll go home. And as we're walking out of the theater, I ask every time one of the most dangerous questions in our marriage. What did you think of the movie? Most of the time we have the same taste, right? We like the same things, we generally think the same thing about a movie, but there's every once in a while where I'll walk out of a movie 
and I will have loved it. And I'll be raving about it, and I'll ask Izzy, what did you think about it? And she'll just give me the, uh, yeah, it was good. Now I have to spend the rest of my night convincing her that it was incredible. I don't know from her perspective why she didn't like it, but I'm going to spend every moment being like, no, what about this? What about this? I loved it. It was great. And we kind of see this idea of perspective everywhere we go, right? We see it in sports. The Suns lose, and you can find Randy and I crying. The other team's cheering, all 10 Mavericks fans that exist, right? We see this most notably, we see this recently in politics, the overturn of Roe v. Wade. What a celebration that happened in this room. But out in the world, it was not like that. And our text today, what Nahum has for us, is a little bit like that. Nahum promises the end of the Assyrian Empire. The movie's over. But for one, one people, the end brings rescue. It brings rejoicing. Everyone's excited. Praise God. And from a different perspective, the end brings ruin. It brings torture. It brings the start destruction. So if you're taking notes today, I want to point to three points. In Nahum 1, 9 through 14, the Lord brings the end. The Lord brings the end. And the second point is, the end brings rescue. The end brings rescue. And the third point is, the end brings ruin. So the Lord brings the end, the end brings rescue, and the end brings ruin. Look with me to verse 9 as we start point 1. The Lord brings the end. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Nahum asks, what do you plot against the Lord? This question, he's directing it at wicked Assyria. We've seen them all throughout all the minor prophets. This powerful, great nation. Wicked nation. And in the question, Nahum has a lot packed in. He's truly showing us how God views their sin. This powerful nation led in wickedness, idolatry, and God is acknowledging them for what they truly are. It's not as though Assyria was this nation who slipped up. It's not as though Assyria had made some mistakes or that they were this good-intentioned nation and you know it all just kind of got ahead of them and they lost control and now they're in this bad spot. This wicked nation is plotting directly working against the glory of God. This, is a, this nation is a scourge on God's people, day in and day out, oppressing them, and they've, they've put themselves under the judgment of God. And Scripture even asks this question, Nahum asks this question with some implications. What, what do you plot against the Lord that could possibly be successful? Nothing. Nahum is telling the Assyrians, and he's reminding God's people, 
there is nothing that any of us could do or any of the Assyrians could do that could persevere against the plan and the wrath of God. For all their plotting, for all their planning, for all their sinning, God will bring about an absolute and complete end. And this picture is not one of a climactic fight scene, a tug of war between good and evil, who will prevail. This is not wave after wave of trench warfare where the enemy seems to always rise again and always come back for a second time. God makes clear. He will end this trouble for good and they will not rise a second time. In short, the end is coming and Assyria is helpless. That is why Nahum continues and he says in verse 10 that they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink, like stubble fully dried, they are consumed. Three parallel metaphors. I don't know if you've, if you've ever tried to reach your hand into a thorny bush uh, in Arizona called a cactus, but in the rest of the world, it's a bush. Uh, you have a, something in there and you're trying to grab it and it just feels like all there is is thorns. Or you go to the store, you know, your husband, you're trying to buy some flowers for your wife and you're trying to carry these roses and you've got to find the one little spot where there's not a bunch of thorns for you to carry it. It's, it's almost as though there's nothing except thorns. The thorns have completely consumed this. Like a drunkard as they drink. They're consuming the alcohol, but the alcohol is consuming them. And like stubble fully dried, I think a metaphor easily understood for us in Arizona. It's hot, it's dry, catches on fire, it's gone. Just like that. That is the destiny of Assyria. That is what God has for them. God's wrath will completely consume this nation. And even further, he continues to remind this wicked nation whose fault this really is, why this is happening. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. And it's unclear from the context whether Nahum is accusing a specific king as a worthless counselor or potentially an entire city like Nineveh is the worthless counselor or the nation as a whole. Assyria is one giant worthless counselor. But here's what is clear. Syria has no one to turn to, nowhere to run, and no one to blame. They will be consumed. Their worthless counselors have doomed them. And we hear worthless. Uh, we, I think when I hear the word worthless, of something that's useless. Something I have, it's kind of junk, I throw it in the garage, I'm a little bit of a hoarder, so it collects dust for the rest of time. I'll never touch it again, it's useless. Can't sell it. <clears throat> but to be worthless in Nahum and in much of the Old Testament is to be fundamentally against the Lord. It's not as though these people are useless. It's that the things that they do do are against God's glory. And we see this all the time in the Old Testament. In, in 1 Kings 21, we see a famous story called Naboth's Vineyard where King Ahab, a wicked king, and his wife Jezebel they want to steal this vineyard from Naboth. 
And they enlist the help of these two worthless men who frame him. And it, they're not worthless in the sense that they execute that plan perfectly. That man is framed and they take the vineyard. They're worthless because that was not what the Lord wanted. They were working against the glory of the Lord. In 1 Samuel, we see this with Eli, the priest. His sons are worthless men. People come up to bring their offerings to the priest in the temple, and Eli's sons are corrupt with it. They taint the offering. They're worthless. And it's a good reminder for us, I think, where our worth actually comes from. We have worth and we have value because we're made in the image of God, because God gives it to us. In 1 Kings and in 1 Samuel and here in Nahum chapter 1, these same people made in God's image reject the one who gave them their worth. They chase their worth in the things of this world, and in doing so, they're rejecting the only one that can actually satisfy it, God. I think that should lead us to ask, in what things and people are we finding our worth? Have you found your worth in your job so much so that you've turned away from the Lord? Is politics your king where you find your identity? Have you desired so much to be a good mother that you've turned away from your good father? Because all of those things will come to an end. This was the fate of Assyria as they made stride after stride after stride seeking worth in their own power, in their own wealth, in their own fame, and God rebukes them. Assyria has plotted evil against the Lord. They are going to be consumed by the wrath of God and they will never rise again. The end is coming. The Lord brings the end. And now our text reaches this fork in the road, this perspective shift. What does this end bring? Well, for one people, it brings rescue. And for another, ruin and destruction. So point number two, the end brings rescue. Look to verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Nahum gives us a promise of comfort. For those who call upon the, the Lord, this end, God's wrath, is rescue. Though Assyria, this powerful nation, is at full strength, they're a multitude, God will cut them down. Like a weed, God is going to pluck them out of the ground, toss them aside, and in the heat they will shrivel and pass away. And even though God's people woke up that day in a wicked and sinful world under the oppression of the Assyrians, they know the rescue is theirs. They know that God has promised to end their affliction, to set them free, to break their bonds. 
Church, this is not just God's promise in the book of Nahum. This is God's promise to us. This is our world. You woke up today in a wicked and sinful world. And the the power of sin in our world seems to be at full strength. It's a fitting description. The amount of wickedness seems never-ending. Every day, a new tragedy, a new story, a new evil. But God's people take comfort. They took comfort knowing that God will make a complete end to Assyria, that he had promised to do it, and we must take comfort knowing that God has promised to make a complete end to everything that plots against him in our world. But I want to take a moment to say, put yourselves in the shoes of God's people in the book of Nahum. You hear this grand promise. God is going to set the captives free. Would you believe it? I mean, the reason that the promise is so sweet and you take such comfort in it is because it's so radical. It is hard to believe because of what Assyria is. They seem unbeatable. They seem unstoppable. Do you believe God is capable of doing this? When you flip on the news and your blood pressure starts to rise because of the political turmoil or because of the tragedy that's in the headlines today, do you believe God is capable of crushing evil? And not just capable, but that God has promised to put it to an end. Or what about when sin calls your name? When temptation comes and pulls you in, do you really believe God hates sin? Do you think God is capable of crushing evil when you're the one participating in the wickedness? Not just capable, but do you believe that he even wants to do it? Or do you think, surely God isn't going to punish me? Surely God is busy with what's happening in the news. I'm not nearly as bad as those people. Well, Nahum reminds us that God is in control. God doesn't forget his people. God cares about sin in this world, and God will put it to an end. And even more, we find this amazing comfort. We read Nahum's word, and and they are something we rest in. Because God's people look across the aisle. They look to Assyria. And they don't just see this wicked nation. They don't just see this sinful people. They see themselves. Because they know that they're a wicked people. God's people know that they've lifted up worthless counselors over and over and over again. They know that they plot against the Lord, and yet God promises to rescue them. We can't read our Bibles, we can't read Nahum, and think that God's people deserve to be rescued. We can't look in the mirror and think that we deserve to be rescued by a perfect and holy God. But we must recognize what Nahum has for us. That we are a people who deserve ruin. Which brings us to our third point today. 
the end brings ruin. Verse 14, the Lord has given commandment about you. No longer shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. We see the perspective shift again. What is rescue to God's people is ruin to the vile people of Assyria. What does this dynasty ending mean for them? It means destruction. The Lord has given commandment about them. God has executed his judgment. There's no more uncertainty. The time is now. The verdict is laid down. Assyria is guilty. And God promises to crush their expansion. He promises to crush their false gods. And he promises to make their graves. No more shall their name be perpetuated, says the Lord. No longer will God sit back and allow Assyria to expand, conquering nation after nation. Assyria had dreams to conquest and be all there was, to take over city after city, land after land. And then as they take more land and land, more people are born into this regime. More people are born into this nation. And so they grow and they grow until there's nothing but Assyria. That honor belongs to God. That is the call in the garden that we are supposed to be fruitful, multiply, expand the earth so that God's glory is all there is from east to west. And Assyria cannot share the stage. It is God who will be, whose name will be perpetuated from age to age. It is God's people who will see him work generation to generation, time after time, knowing that they are part of the unstoppable story, that they are part of the real, true kingdom. Assyria's desire to make themselves God has led to their destruction. The offspring of Assyria will be no more. There will be no one who will inherit the name. And then he continues and says, from the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. It's only fitting. Right? God is going to strike down this nation. And if its kings and rulers and leaders are going to fall, so too will these false gods who can't stand before the true almighty father. And he ends our text today. The Lord says, I will make your grave for you are vile. The Lord ends his judgment by saying he will make a grave because of these vile people, these wicked, disgusting, horrible people. The word vile, it actually means even more in our context. Despite everything Assyria thinks of themselves, they're this great, amazing nation. Despite what the whole world thinks of them, that they're unstoppable. 
Who could ever stand before them? To God, they're of very little consequence. They are not a threat to the great, almighty, true God. One theologian puts it this way. God will provide a grave suitable for Assyria's true importance. So poor and wretched will Assyria be that only God who planned her doom will be there to mark out her lowly grave in the ruins of this once proud city. God has promised to make them a grave. All that ever stood of Assyria will be buried and forgotten in their ultimate goal of glory and power will be proven as folly, as foolish. Christian, church, let Nahum remind us who we are. We are a people who deserve ruin. We can't forget what we've learned in Jonah and Habakkuk that why God's people are under the boot of Assyria to begin with. They rebelled against God, and God lifted up this nation as a judgment upon them. God allowed them to grow, and we too are a people who rebel against God time and time again. We sin, we run, we hide. We lift up our worthless counselors. And the wage for that sin is death. Our graves are made just like that great and powerful nation of Assyria. And God would have every right to let us fall right into it. But instead, God enters that grave for us. That grave made for Assyria is one for them, one that God will put them in. But the grave God made for us is one that he himself has chosen to enter. Sin demands that this grave be filled, but Christ Jesus comes. He comes as the only one who doesn't plot against the Lord, the only one that doesn't plan evil and wickedness, not as a worthless counselor, but he comes as a wonderful counselor, and he takes that judgment upon himself on your behalf. The only one who is not vile takes the grave. And then he rises from it. He defeats it. So that God's promise to the people in Nahum's time is the same promise to us. God will make a complete end to sin and death. And we can trust that God will fulfill this promise because he defeated death in the grave. Nothing seems full strength more than death. Nothing seems more unavoidable. Nothing is more undeniably powerful than death. And God conquers it for you and me. It cannot afflict us. Our bonds are broken. The yoke is off of us. We are set free. And now we wait with anticipation, eagerly longing for the day to come where it's defeated entirely. Like Nahum we take our comfort in the knowledge that God will make a complete end, that his judgment is coming, that Christ will return 
and death will take its place in the grave for eternity. That is the hope of the Christian life. So my exhortation for us today is this. Don't let it be in something else. Don't let your hope rest in anything other than Christ. That's where it belongs. Don't let your Christian hope rest in how well you raise your children, how good you are at your job, how often you come to church, how much you know. Let your hope rest in Christ who has died and rose again for you. And to let that hope rest in Christ means so much. But I want to offer a few applications that I think are helpful for us today. If you're a Christian, if your hope is in the Lord, you confess your sin. Ask yourself, when's the last time you actually did that? When we truly rest in the arms of Christ, in the work of what he did for the cross, when he rescued us, we confess our sin because we know that he will not bring us back into the arms of destruction. Once he's rescued us, he will not bring us back into ruin. And yet there are so many of us who carry our burdens. What will my pastor think? What will my wife think? What will my kids think? What will God think? All of those people think you're a sinner, because you are. But you have no need to fear. God has taken that punishment upon himself for you. You are freed to confess and rest in the one who's rescued you. If your hope is in the Lord, if your hope is in Christ, you comfort others. The Lord comforts with his rescue. That is, that is what Nahum, that's what the word means. It means comfort. So too must we comfort each other. We must hear the confessions of our brothers and sisters and remind them of the one who rescued them, the one who can truly comfort them. We must point our kids to this unshakable hope. But we must also point others to it because those who hope in the Lord invite the world into their rest. Nahum is clear. There is not a thing that will stand before the wrath and plan of God. What could you plot against the Lord that would work? Nothing. And when you truly know the rescue, when you truly know the rescuer, Christ, you don't keep him for yourself. You have seen the end. Nahum is showing it to us. We know that there was a grave for us that Christ laid in, and we know that there is a grave made for those who reject him. And yet our hearts don't want to see people be rescued so often. How many times have we driven by the neighbor's house with a sign or a flag that we don't like? and we've wished destruction. Or we've wished that they moved, at least. I'm willing to bet, because I know my own heart, that we're in this room today, each and every one of us wish for ruin a lot more than we pray for rescue. 
And for those in this room who need this rescue, for those who don't know Christ, God has shown you the end. You stand at this fork in the road and on one side, rescue, and on the other, ruin. Take note of Assyria. They were a nation that had everything you strive to have. They had power. They had money. They had fame. They had dreams. And they had a grave. What could you plot against the Lord that will be successful? What path could you take that doesn't end with you being consumed? And this is the hope, the true hope that Christ offers us. That we serve a God who is jealous for your worship because he knows that he alone is worthy of it. He knows your sin. He knows your shame. He knows that you've rebelled against him. Rather than putting that on you and putting you in the grave, he puts that on Christ for you so that you may know him and you may take refuge in him. And so Nahum calls us today to repent, accept Christ, find true, unending comfort as a son or daughter of the true God. Never forgetting, as Nahum shows us, that while in the end we deserve ruin, we are loved and saved by a God who brings rescue. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Lord, you are good. And in your goodness, we take refuge because we know we are undeserving. Lord, you are a powerful and wrathful God, jealous for our worship. And we rejoice in those realities because we know that you've given us a way when there was no way. That through Christ, we can sing your praises. We can find rest for eternity. And when the end comes, and all that is wicked will pass away. We will rejoice. We pray all this 